Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I remember George Orwell said, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. We need to have the freedom to say things that might be difficult. Welcome to Spokes. In this episode, we speak to the Irish psychotherapist, best-selling author and public speaker Stella O'Malley. Stella's three books are Cotton Wool Kids, Bullyproof Kids and Fragile. In more recent years, Stella has explored and discussed the topic of transgenderism. And in 2018, she presented the Channel 4 programme Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk In this episode, we talk about Stella's path into psychotherapy and into writing, about her own interest in transgender issues. We also touch on the research or lack of research on trans children and the medicalisation of children. We also discuss detransitioning, approaches taken by professionals, what's happening in relation to trans issues in Ireland and also Stella gives some advice for parents. We'll just dive straight in, yeah, if that's okay. Please do, yeah. yeah. Okay, so can how did you get to the point of being a psychotherapist? Because apparently we had a conversation briefly a year and a half ago or something where we realised there was some connection, Temple Bar in the 90s. <laughs> so really? I'm dying to know. Yeah. <laughs> Am I right? In, yeah, there, yeah, there was, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. You're very right. Yeah, yeah. So um, tell us how you got to this point first. Okay. Well, uh, I, uh, I hated school. And I couldn't get out of there quick enough, but I was quite I was quite good at school, but I hated it. And so I left school and I left home fully enough the last day of my leaving cert. And I had myself all organised and I moved into a flat in Dublin, in town. I live, I'm from Blanchardstown. And I, uh, I quite quickly met a man who became my boyfriend at the time. And he was a street trader. And I became a street trader. So I was 17, so I wasn't even applicable for the dole, you know. And so I became a street trader. And I was a street trader for years. I loved it. And I then, after a while, I got a bit cold and wet as the years went on. And I went into markets and was in the George Street Market. And then from that, I was quite good at it. I'm lucky enough to be all right at making money. And I um, got a shop in Temple Bar. And that's how... I could have been in Temple Bar in the 90s at a shop called Reckless. And I loved my shop and it was a closed shop and it was lovely. And then as the years went by, I'm in my 20s by now, mid 20s, I started to get a bit bored, you know, 10 grey XL T-shirts, 14 navy XL T-shirts. It became a bit, I wanted something a bit, a bit more depth. And I also again met a man and he was in Offaly and I liked his town where he was living, Burr. And I wanted to move out of Dublin. I wanted to uh, start a new life that had a bit more depth. Didn't know where I was going. And against everybody's advice, I sold the shop and uh, um, looked around for for something, a new career. I would be kind of 25, 26 at this stage. And it was weird and it was hard. 
I started, I did a bit of work on radio and I started a course and it was like the first day I walked into that counselling course. It was a very much an evening course. Come along to the Bridge House Hotel, you might be interested. And I was like, bang, I love it. It's everything I wanted. And so then I studied, I studied for a good few years. It was long and convoluted uh, studying because, like I say, I started with a very kind of offhand course and eventually got my degree and got my master's and the whole lot. Right. That's the long answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You're quite prolific. You've three books and I was looking at the dates of them yesterday. So it's 2015, 2017 and 2019. Yeah, yeah. That's... I have an awful lot to say, as you might have noticed. And uh, the first book, for like a lot of writers, the first book takes 10 years. And then after that, it's 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 kind of, it rolls out of you. And the first book did take a long time because I remember writing that in 2012. I remember it kind of originally came from a thesis I had written for my degree. And then I, you know, rolled it on and I messed around with it. And I remember we were, I can date it at 2012 because we actually did a house swap. I had young kids at the time. We did a house swap. And I remember specifically writing the end at the end of the book in 2012. <laughs> I didn't get it published till 2015. So there was a lot of changes. But then once it was up and running, yeah, I, I love it. I love writing. Absolutely love it. And, um, you know, I hope to write more books. Had the writing been something that was on your radar, you know, way back or did that kind of just come accidentally? It's funny, isn't it? Like when you look back at your teenage self, like I was I was crazy about reading. I I read everything all my life. Real, really, really heavy reader all my life. And yet had somebody said to me, oh, you'll be a writer, it would have been like saying you'll be an astronaut, just like you'll be a psychotherapist. That would have been you'd be an astronaut or you'd be a journalist. They were blatantly obvious career traits for me. No way from the context, the social context I was in, was anybody going to say journalist or psychotherapist. It just would have been considered having notions and uh, just wasn't ever going to be just it's hard to explain it unless you've lived through it that you just, you know, it would have been just laughed at. And they often say, you know, being laughed at is, is much more destructive than no, you can't do it. If somebody said, no, you can't do it, it could light a fire of I'll, I'll prove them wrong. But being dismissed with a smile and kind of told, you know, get down off your horse there and calm down and go, go and be a teacher. It's, <laughs> it's much more destructive because it's much harder to uh, have the gumption to fight back against that. I do remember in the midst of my looking for my career, when I had the shop, I remember filling in a career, I had a book, I bought a, so I was obviously searching, I had a book on careers, filled it all in, and they said, I distinctly remember it said a writer, and I was like, imagine. I was like, that would be like, for me, it's like winning the lotto a billion times over to be a writer. Still is. Do you know what I mean? So I remember thinking, whoa, I would love that, but not in a million years could I be it. Wow. So as a child, it wasn't even something you allowed yourself to think about the possibility yeah. of these things. Yeah. Right. That was for special people, really. Right. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on to chat was to talk about gender. And let's start again on that topic with asking, how did you get into, because I've read some of your articles, I've listened to some of your talks on, on the radio and uh, you were a guest in Waterford too to, to speak about this stuff. But so how did you yourself get involved in the topic of gender? You know, it's so interesting when you look back and now I'm old enough now to start looking back at the arc of my life. When I was a kid, as far back as I can go, like, you know, before my memory as such, I'd say around three, I had a very intense experience and it, I, I wanted to be a boy, but I was really extreme about it. I wasn't quite, um, I wasn't quite, you know, just a tomboy. It just it, it was a lot more than that. You know what I mean? And there were tomboys in my life. My best friend was a tomboy, but I always felt I was much more. And most people accepted I was way beyond tomboy. It was like I really was a boy. That was, <laughs> that was the kind of 
vibe of the whole thing. It's hard to explain because it seems so surreal now I'm talking about it. But anyway, so I was born in 1974. So from around about the age of three to around about the age of 10, I'm very unsure about the ages here. I so that seven years I would have had what when I look at the diagnosis, when I look at the DSM and the details of what gender dysphoria is, it wasn't called gender dysphoria then. It was called a different name, but I think I would have been easily diagnosed with it. But I came from a different era where people weren't brought to brought to professionals because they were acting in unusual ways. And I was left to it. And there certainly wasn't the concept of using puberty blockers for uh, children like me back then. And puberty was very, 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 very difficult for me. It was uh, a train wreck. It was really hard, but I wasn't offered anything like puberty blockers. And as a direct result of puberty, by the time I came out of puberty, I had become, in my way, comfortable with who I was. Probably if I was given a choice, I'd have been a man. But nah, I'm a woman. I live with it. There was a lot of things, frankly, I would change about my life. And I'd say, yeah, if I was given the choice, I wouldn't be this and I wouldn't be that. And I wouldn't have had that experience and I wouldn't have that. But you learn to live with it. And I came out of it and I knew it was really, really, really hard. I knew I was going through something very unusual and very solitary and it was very hard and nobody else would really understand how hard it was. I remember thinking, nobody gets this because nobody's feeling this and this is really, really, really hard. I do remember thinking this. And so then my life went on and, you know, I lived my life and, like I say, became a trader and shop and all that and uh, didn't you know, didn't really revert. Like once gender dysphoria left me, it never came back. And I'm certainly very happy being a woman now. And I'm a mother and I love being a mother. And uh, funnily enough, when I was 25, I was I was diagnosed with endometriosis and I was told it would, it would be hard to have children. And funnily enough, at the time, didn't give a damn. Just thought, ha, ah, funny. I'm, <laughs> I kind of frankly found it kind of easy because I thought, oh, great, I won't get pregnant. Um, because pregnancy, like a lot of women, was my biggest fear in life at the time. Within seven years, I was having babies and I was an earth mother and breastfeeding and all of it. So it's amazing how you can change. You know, I didn't didn't care about being told I could be infertile uh, at 25. It was all about it in my 30s. Anyway, um, I did keep an eye, I would imagine, more than other people on trans issues in the media because I'd had such a strange experience as a kid. So whenever anything about trans came up, I did tend to read those articles, probably with more penetration and interest than most people, because I was always aware, you know, that was a really a road that I definitely had what these people seem to have had. You, you know what I mean? I did identify with that, but no more than that. And then as the years rolled by, I noticed that trans politics were becoming very different and very unusual and very intense. And I was following this debate and I remember saying to my husband and my sister, I- I'm going to jump in on this. I, I-, I have something to say about this because I had my experience and nobody seems to be mentioning that type of scenario in the latest trans politics. And they just look at me going, really, you know, like, really? <laughs> and uh, then I read about and this was kind of stirring in me. Now, I would I was already in the mainstream by, by then because I was, you know, I, this was about 2017. So it. I'd re- I was just about to release, I remember now, I was just about to release Bullyproof Kids, but I was well established with Cotton Mall Kids. And um, I decided, I read a, an article about Cyril Doty, who is a person in Canada. And uh, the story behind this is that um, the parent was non-binary and gave birth to a child and fought the Canadian courts for the right to raise the child as X or else you, which is unknown or unassumed or unassigned. And I thought that was an awful lot of politics to lay upon a newborn baby's head, that they're, they'd been born in a way that was, they were perfectly healthy. They didn't have any, you know, DSD conditions or intersex conditions. There was no doubt about the biological sex of this child. And yet the parent was so committed to trans politics, fourth Canadian law and won for the right for the child to be you in their birth certificate. And when I read that, I said, that's it. I have something to say about this debate and I'm going to join. And so I wrote an article for the Sunday Independent about my own experiences, about my childhood and about I had grown out of it and I'm very happy being a woman. And what about people like me? And where are they in the trans narrative these days? Because according to ideology, 
you are something. It's innate. There's a soul, there's a blue soul or a pink soul or a non-binary soul within people. And it stayed and it's fixed and it never changes. And I'm like, yeah, well, it changed for me. So it must change for other people because I'm not that unusual, if you follow me. And so when I wrote the article, I was contacted by Channel 4 who asked, would I be interested in contributing to a film? Long end, long story short, I ended up uh, presenting that film. And that's how I got very, very involved in it because I was shocked when we made the film. Just how intense the, the politics are in this world. So when you wrote that article for the Sunday Independent, First of all, was it difficult to get that article published um, or was it easy? Did, and did you have any idea of what the response might be? I knew that I knew enough about it was 2017, summer of 2017. I knew enough about uh, trans politics to know that they were very controversial and very intense and that, you know, the pushback or any sort of other narrative would be considered um on some level, unwoke or inappropriate. I knew I was pushing back against the narrative and the Sunday Independent knew it. And we certainly looked over intensely and there was a lot of pushback from the Sunday Independent, much more than my other articles I'd written for them, making sure that every single fact I wrote was a fact that was verified and verifiable. And it was. And I was very pleased that they were all over it. I remember saying to my husband, I'm glad they're all over this. I want it to be perfect. You know what I mean? And it was. It was everything was I wrote was right and was correct. They published it. There was a little bit of pushback, but it, it was only tiny. It was only tiny. There was a very small amount of pushback um, from a parent who, who had a trans child who reckoned that these uh, identities stay. And I knew my I knew my research and I know that 80 percent, roughly 80 percent of um children who go through what I went through grow out grow up to become completely comfortable in their own skin so I knew that 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 is the stats and they're very recognized from every single study that's ever been taken place peer-reviewed study as opposed to self-selected surveys which I, I wouldn't really regard as important I'm very conscious of the fact that people might be listening who already are hearing words and terms oh, that they sorry. have no idea what they mean. <laughs> For example, gender dysphoria and puberty blockers. So maybe we just touch off them. What is gender dysphoria? Just a yeah, brief little... maybe I'll begin with this world has a lot of jargon and it is seems so impenetrable. And if you go and learn the 10, 12 words, actually, it's very easy then to read everything. So gender dysphoria is a feeling of 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 discomfort, intense discomfort in the the sex stroke gender that you were born. So your biological sex is what you were born in and your gender is the kind of construct that society has placed upon that biological sex. So I was born female and then it was presumed I would like what is considered feminine activities, which I didn't as a child. And I walked like a boy and I talked like a boy and I played like a boy and I fought like a boy. And that would be considered my gender. And my gender dysphoria was I didn't want to act in a way that would be considered feminine. And I wanted to be more like a boy. And in my three year old, five year old mind, that meant I should be a boy. Do you follow me? Because girls can't do things like that. It annoyed me that girls weren't allowed to be like the way I was, if you follow me. Now, some people would argue that we should abolish this gender construct and we should just live freely and boys should be able to wave their, their fairy wand around and sprinkle glitter on us. And I, I do agree that that seems to be the freest way. I also think that something, this didn't come from nowhere and we have to respect the thousands of years that shaped us. And I wonder why it is that whenever I go for a walk, my little boy picks up a stick. He's the gentlest kid in the world. And my little girl will never, who's not gentle, is much more obstreperous, would never pick up a stick. So it does seem to me there is biological leanings that we don't quite have. Uh, we haven't really penetrated. Sorry, what were the other words? Gender dysphoria? The other, the uh, other one that jumped out at me was puberty blockers. Oh, Yeah. So these days, puberty blockers were originally constructed and they were designed and licensed for children who undergo precocious puberty. And that would be children who might be six or five years old who undergo puberty. It's an aberration. It's an unusual scenario. It's not good for the child. And so they give them puberty blockers and it blocks puberty. And then they stop giving them at an age that seems appropriate that you would have puberty. So maybe at nine or ten, 
the blockers would be stopped and the child would go through the puberty that they had begun, strangely enough, earlier in the in their life. And uh, that's, you know, that's a well-established scenario. Not not common, but well-established. And somewhere <clears throat> in uh, between kind of around about 2008, uh, Holland in, ne- in the Netherlands, they thought, well, what if we gave those to children who are very likely to, to, to transition in the future, that they have gender dysphoria, but it's very insistent, persistent and consistent. And we believe we can choose very intelligently, us psychotherapists and psychologists can choose the children that will maintain. Remember I said 80% move out of it. So there's a 20% that don't. So what happens to them? And the psychologists in this uh, Netherlands clinic decided that they actually could tell which children could and which children couldn't. And so they gave the children who would um, not grow out of it, who they deemed wouldn't grow out of it, they gave them blockers and those children went all went on to transition. And then they did it again. And there's been lots of tests since. So nowadays it's become a real uh, desire for any child who has gender dysphoria to have those blockers. And the sad thing about that is, I don't know whether it, it ever was a good idea. Personally, I'm, I'm quite anti them. But now people feel that they, if they don't get blockers, they don't have valid gender dysphoria. And so they really seek the blockers out. And I know for a fact that I would have sought them out if I'd known that they existed. And I also know that they would have been very bad for me because they would have created, they would have blocked my growth of breasts, of hair, of of development. And that would have made a real disjointed, disturbed um, relationship with my body even worse because it, w- it would have stopped my puberty and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have developed my puberty along with my peers and along with myself and my own brain. And so I just think it's a minefield and they, they were not licensed and they are not licensed to give to children with gender dysphoria. They're just being applied to children with gender dysphoria. But um, can these be reversed? So does it matter if, if, if children take them? Can they just decide five years later, actually, don't know if that was a good idea. And are there long term medical impacts from them or is it just it's no problem? Um, the up until recently, the NHS and the HSE and Tenny and Mermaids and everybody told all the parents and children involved that they were reversible. Fully reversible was the phrase they used. And the other phrase they used was, it's just like a pause button. And I've spoken to parents and they so welcomed the idea of a pause button. And so would the children have. Like you're going through puberty, it's a mess. It's just a really difficult, difficult, difficult time to go through, especially if you're disturbed anyway. And um, people welcomed the idea of a pause button that was fully reversible. Now research has come to light that there's no evidence to suggest that they're fully reversible. Wow. Yeah. So, so there's long term permanent consequences for and we don't then. yet know them because this is like I say, we started in 2000, maybe 2006, maybe 2008 in Holland with these. Every other kid before that would have been only precocious puberty. So we're quite early into this. If you follow me, what are we? 12 years from the first time. I'm not sure about whether it's 2006, 2008, somewhere around then when, when the first child would have taken puberty blockers. And so what's that 12 years ago? And all those children transitioned. So we don't know about the children that haven't transitioned. The children that say, OK, well, I'll revert. I, I, I'll, I'll reverse and I'll, I'll go into puberty now, five years later. We don't know what's become of them. We don't know what's right. going to happen there. That's really sad and really intensely inappropriate part of trans politics and trans treatment and medical treatment in the gender dysphoric world is that there's a huge amount of people who are lost to follow up. And that means there's all these studies and a significant section are lost to follow up. We don't know what happened to them. And those people are the kind of canaries in the coal mine because we want to know, well, what did happen to you? How did that impact you? And the studies and the clinics are not following up. They're not finding them. Why is that? Why are they not following up? Or do you know? Um, I'm not sure I know. I would I would say at the start, it just studies. People are lost. People move. People change addresses. This does happen. And I would say 
now that it's become such an intense issue because an awful lot of detransitioners are now coming out, that's people, detransitioners are people who transitioned. For example, Kira Bell would be a very good example of my worry as opposed to there's very happy and I know a lot of people who are very happy they've transitioned, but there's also unhappy. And because I'm a psychotherapist, I naturally gravitate towards the unhappy and try to seek and see if we can uh, make this better. And so Kira Bell would have been uh, a teenager much later than me, 20, 30 years later. And so she was offered the option of puberty blockers and she took them and she then went on to transition. She's 23 now. She's had a mastectomy and she's got a man's voice and she, you know, she she's beautiful, by the way, but she she is definitely transitioned and then she detransitioned. And so now she is taking a course, a, a court case against the, the Tavistock saying that, you know, you gave me puberty blockers when I really didn't understand the impact. And uh, so I don't know if I've left your question, but this would be my main issue is that I'm in touch with an awful lot of detransitioners. I work with detransitioners and I'm awful, also friendly with a lot of detransitioners. And they, none of them that I know of, have gone back to the clinics that medicated them. It feels like going back to a dreadfully traumatic place that gave me traumatic treatment. And they just can't face it. They've often talked about going back. They often build themselves up to go back to say, well, I detransitioned, this didn't work. And they just can't seem to bring themselves to go back. It's it's tragic, but it's really noticeable that they don't go back. And so they are the laws to follow up. And so I'm very concerned that the laws to follow up in these studies, and that's all they're termed as, are actually detransitioners or certainly people who are distressed about their medical treatment. I suppose the fact that it's also recent, I mean, things are changing so rapidly in, in, in the context of gender, even gender itself, that word I think was used for the first time in the way we understand it today in the 1950s. But you mentioned there that you're in touch with a lot of detransitioners. Is that in Ireland? And what is the situation in Ireland? It's funny, since I've, uh, since I've got into this world, I'm much more connected with people in the UK than I am in Ireland. Most of my clients are in the UK um, because my film was released in Channel 4 in the UK and I'm well known in the UK. So, no, there's a few people and I don't want to give it away because it's a very small world. So I am in touch with a couple of people, a few people in Ireland, but it's not many. And I don't particularly like talking about Irish because of confidentiality. And it's a village, Ireland. It's so small. So if I start to tell you a story about Ireland, everybody, would, well, everybody in the world, in the trans world would know who I was talking about. So I tend not to. Right. Do you have or can I talk about what is happening in Ireland? I mean, oh, yeah. uh, personally, I know many teenagers and young people who all seem to have a friend or friends who are trans, um, either who have undergone a medical transition or who are socially transitioning. So it seems very much it is a, a hot topic in Ireland at the it, moment. Yeah, I agree. And I, I have a lot of uh, people contacted me around that issue. Um, yeah, it is. I often think that Ireland is kind of like England in 2015, 2016, that the social contagion is happening now. And Lisa Lippman has written a paper for Brown University about how there's a phenomenon and it's not a diagnosis, but it's more a descriptor of a phenomenon where children um, are are meeting other children and they, they kind of it's a social contagion that happens between them. One one charismatic person in the group decides they're trans and then another person does and then another person does. It's certainly quite noticeable. Lisa Littman call it rapid onset gender dysphoria, as in these children would never have shown any discomfort with their sex or with their gender in previous years. And then suddenly at 15 became very um, intense, often on the on the Internet and uh, decided that they uh, were actually um, born in the wrong body. And that's the phrase that often gets used. And it's a phrase I, I dislike because I don't think anybody can be born in the wrong body or else we're all born in the wrong body. I was certainly born in the wrong body. And I think that uh, it, it's, it's a very good descriptor of a phrase of a feeling, but it's not a diagnosis. You can't be born in the wrong body. You're born in your body. It is the body you were born in. And it's very offensive, I would say, I know because I've been in touch with an awful lot of people who have huge difficulties with the body they were born in. Because, yeah, yeah, certainly 
we're all loads of us are born in the wrong body. We'd and like to change lots of parts. Yeah, of our yeah, to to lesser and to really, really extreme degrees where you'd say, you know, some people are born in, a, in really awfully challenging bodies. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And um, well, what the actual phrase is, it should be used, is gender dysphoria. And some people have uh, gender dysphoria and some people don't. And sometimes the gender dysphoria persists to an extraordinary degree and some people choose to transition in a bid to reduce the gender dysphoria and very often it reduces it but it doesn't go away if you transition and for some people it doesn't reduce it and for some people the gender dysphoria goes away on its own. You know there's a lot of other conditions in life whereby you might have a condition I've you know met people who for example who've had depression and for some people they have talk therapy and it goes away and it never returns. For some people, they have talk therapy, they have antidepressants, they have heavier doses of antidepressants, they have psychiatric stays, they have ECT, and it still remains. Do, do you follow me? So th there's lots of degrees in any condition, and we need to be aware that this is just like every other condition. I'm really glad you mentioned that, actually, because one of the things that I always think when it comes to this issue and this debate is the complexity of it. And it's often really simplified and people say, oh, you know, mm. uh, it's it's people who have gender dysphoria and their gender identity doesn't match their sex and they transition. But there's so much more in it. You know, there's sexuality is connected to it. There's identity. There's other factors. But from what I understand, um, we have across the world in the Western world at the moment, a kind of an affirmation approach to people who have um, gender issues. What do you think the affirmation approach being, say now I say I'm uncomfortable in my body as a woman, I my gender identity is male and the affirmation approach then, what impact does that have or what are your own views on it? So the affirmation approach, just like the, the puberty blockers approach, it's new, you know, we're, we're 10 or so years into this, where um, by if somebody comes in According to the affirmation model, if, if, if a client comes in and says, I think I might be born in the wrong body, I think I think I might be a girl trapped in a boy's body. Well, the affirmative approach would say, well, yes, you are. And let me help you um, transition. And I would say that is negating everything we know about psychology and everything we know about 
um, how the mind works. And very, very often when a client comes into me, they want, might want to talk about, you know, they might want to talk about how their partner is a disgrace and how they should leave their partner. And, you know, eight sessions in, they're talking about their drinking habit. You know what I mean? That the, the fact is humanity and human condition is very complex and what somebody presents as isn't necessarily. And Carl Jung has written a lot about, you know, metaphorical problems. And, you know, we are very complex. And to presume that this is simple is to kind of underestimate how how extraordinary complex people are. And there are other treatment approaches. Um, the Dutch came up with the concept of watchful waiting. I'm not mad about that either because it's like it's like you're waiting for something. Should be watchful observation, I would say. As in, you know, you watch the child if they declare they have gender dysphoria and see if they if they might one day want to transition when they're an adult. But watchful waiting is waiting to see if it if and the phrase is consistent, persistent and insistent. If the child is those three things, then they should go on blockers and they should perhaps glow on blockers and should perhaps transition medically. And there's also kind of gender exploratory therapy where you could just explore a person's gender without an angle, with using all your kind of psychotherapy and all your counselling that you, you've learned, just like you would with every other issue. And it's the exceptionalism that I, I find a bit um inappropriate around gender dysphoria as if there's one condition which is gender dysphoria which is unlike every other condition we've known for thousands of years and for this condition we have to have a very special approach which is the affirmative approach and we don't use that approach for any other condition that just seems unusual because if somebody came in to me with any other condition I wouldn't immediately affirm it, I would affirm their feelings, I would affirm where they're coming from, I would affirm how they feel and how difficult it is and all everything that they're experiencing. But to affirm their their treatment and their vision of what should happen is not always the most appropriate and best thing you could do for somebody. In Ireland, is there are there rules about counselling people with gender dysphoria? Well, you know, the rules are very interesting because the rules are are from uh, a self-organized group called WPATH, which is the World Professional Association for uh, Trans Health Care and something like that in and around that anyway. And it is the uh, it is. It was it's fascinating when you look at the history of WPATH because it started with this guy, Harry Benjamin. And he was very interested in transitioning and he was very against Freud, by the way. And he, he kind of fell out with Freud and he created his own organisation, which was the Harry Benjamin HBGTI, I don't know what it was called, some very long acronym with lots of letters. And for uh, for many years, 20 odd years, that was the, the World Association for Trans Healthcare. And then the Harry Benjamin Society turned into what WPATH around about 1979 a kind of a loosely affiliated group of of medics who are interested in this. And so they create a standards of care guidelines and they were used and they were used in the 80s and 90s. And then um, around about the noughties and especially in 2012, they revised their guidelines. There's been about five or six or seven revisions of the standards of care. I think we're on SOC 7 now. Yeah, we are standards of care. And the standards of care have changed massively. And so now suddenly WPATH have decided that uh, the, the, that we should affirm. But WPATH are, are their own organisation. And like Don Loche, who has worked in trans healthcare in Ireland for 25 years, and he's a really, really well-respected physician. He's an endocrinologist. He's also worked hugely in obesity. And that's where I first noticed him when I studied for when I was studying and researching my book, Cottonwool Kids. I noticed he was very strong in it and he was brilliant at it. And um, he uh, was very, um, he has, he's very respectful of the own model that he comes up with, which he called the St. Cullum Kill model, which is based in Lachlanstown. And he says, we've got a great model. We don't follow WPATS guidelines because we've got our own guidelines, which are working very well for us. And so there's no, uh, you know, WPATH, people are choosing and organisations are choosing to 
to, to follow the guidelines of WPATH and other organizations are choosing not to. So this is a, it's a new field. It's changing rapidly. The, the guidelines are changing rapidly. The treatment is changing ra- rapidly and everybody's kind of paddling very, very fast to catch up. That's very interesting about that there are guidelines, but people can decide for themselves to choose a different path. I think when it comes to Ireland in recent years, what's happened in the UK, am I right in saying that the, the balance of male to female transitioning is 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 undergoing a rapid change? Yeah. That it used to be predominantly males to be transitioning. By far and away, it was fascinating. It was always way, way, way more males transitioning than, than women. You just didn't hear about women. And then it's flipped. It's completely flipped now. It's much more girls transitioning than males. And uh, nobody knows why this is. Nobody's figured that out. Uh, people have theories, but there is no evidence. The big thing about this, and this is why I prevaricate and I use a lot of kind of maybes and unsures. And please forgive me if I haven't, because I have to prevaricate for every sentence because there's no evidence. The evidence base is really, really, really flimsy. There's very little studies. Some of the studies have, you know, 20, 30 people in the studies. Very small studies. Also, a huge amount of studies are being relied upon and they're very short term studies. And there's actually, I only know of one very long term study in this field. And uh, that long term study was very concerning. And even then, that was uh, a study of people who would have been transitioning before this massive explosion. And the explosion is huge. So there's around about 2,500 percent rise in children seeking treatment for gender dysphoria in the last decade. That's in England and in Ireland. Um, It's about 2,200 in Ireland, about 2,500 in England. These are phenomenal figures. Like if there was a 2,200 rise in the sales of Mars bars, I'd say, what is going on? What is that? Like, it's an extraordinary rise and we don't know why. And a lot of people have an awful lot of theories and there's very little evidence to back, to back up anything. Is there much research being carried out in Ireland on why this is happening here? I, I, I'm carrying out research and uh, most of the research I carry out is involved in the UK and America because it's a very small field with very small numbers. So to, to carry it out in Ireland, I presume, without a doubt, Lachlanstown and Tenney and other organisations in Ireland are carrying out their own research, I've no doubt about it. But the numbers will be small. And that is that is an issue. And that's why I prefer the kind of bigger global long term studies where you can actually talk about trends as opposed to small studies, which I, I find, you know, especially short term studies, I have very little interest in short term studies because they just flag in things. They're not really giving you any evidence. You mentioned earlier there that Ireland now is like the UK in 2015, 2016. So we're kind of following the trend. Yeah. And it's very interesting because in Ireland, uh, we uh, children in Ireland are treated by NHS physicians. So the NHS come over every month and they, uh, yeah, from from the Tavistock. The Tavistock is the, the largest gender clinic in England. And it's based in London and the Tavistock come over or else, you know, JIDS in general. JIDS is Gender Identity Development Service in in England. They uh, they carry out medical services on children, while the adult services is well established, like I said, with Don Lachey in Lachlanstown and other doctors in Lachlanstown. Carl Neff, I think, is heading that now, Dr. Carl Neff. But uh, the children are very much um, shaped by the NHS. And it's very interesting because the NHS changed their their website and they said that puberty blockers are, aren't reversible, that there's no evidence to suggest that they're reversible. And yet the HSC haven't caught up. And so they still have on their website, as we are speaking now today, they still have on their website that they're fully reversible, even though uh, the NHS who informed them haven't. So... It's like it's like it's being ignored. It's it's such a scary issue. And all the listeners who, who are listening will know that it's just such a hot issue and it's changes all the time. And people jump down your throat if you make a mistake. And we all make mistakes because we're human. And so people stay away from it. And so it's like everybody is moving away from it as opposed to moving towards it, which makes it an even scarier industry to be involved in. Yeah. One of the things that just reminded me there when you were talking about uh, puberty blockers, 
the medicalization is not just the, the puberty blockers, of course, it's that hormones will be given to teenagers who've already gone through puberty. But can you take them, for example, if I was a teenage girl and I uh, felt like I was a, 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 a boy and I had gender dysphoria and I wanted to transition, could I then take testosterone and would that resolve the dysphoria? And would I be able to change, stop taking it with no long term impacts if I wanted to? You know, I often think like being born a woman is just so much harder than being born a man. And it seems to me that transitioning to uh, from a girl to a man seems to have a heavier impact, if you follow me. In what so, way? Testosterone. Testosterone has an extraordinary impact. So, for example, if you're a girl and if you take cross-sex hormones and you take T, as they call it, testosterone, your voice will thicken and your voice will go like heavy, like a man's, and it won't go back. That's it. You've a man's voice. And not only that, it causes hair growth and balding, um, hair growth around your body and balding. And again, now it seems some of the then, you know, people who detransition, they take testosterone, they become they have a man's voice. They have the hair all over their body, back hair, you know, wherever a man might have hair, they have body hair, chest hair. And then if they detransition, their voices seem to remain the same. Like I say, the evidence is very, we, we really it's don't know. There's, there's no, there's two papers out on detransitioning. It's very, very, very flimsy as we speak. But the detransitioners I know, it doesn't seem to be. The voices seem to be staying the same. And the uh, the body hair has to go through a massive program of electrolysis to get rid of it. The balding is debatable because I've seen somebody with, with who went, who detransitioned and she was balding and she seems to be she I think she seems to be getting her hair back. You, you, do you follow right. me? But so people she, are learning then, really. Yeah. About, yeah. They're, yeah. And they say themselves, we're we're human guinea pigs. We're figuring it out. And it's very interesting when you look at the forms. Like when I first looked at D-Trans Reddit, it was uh, about a thousand uh, people on it. And now there's I think there's. 13,000, it's a huge number now, 14,000 on it now. And they all exchange information because there's no evidence. There's no there's no knowledge out there. You can't Google this because nobody knows. So they exchange evidence among themselves. Oh, did your, how's your voice and has it lightened at all? And how's your balding? And they discuss it with each other. Well, it's great. They have that place then, isn't it? It is, but it's scary because some people are very doom and gloom about it. You're, you're, oh, really? Yeah. As you can imagine, and some people are are seem to be maybe I don't know. There's a lot of stories on it that you just think, oh my god, this is the Wild West. That's what I feel yeah. when I read it. It sounds I've nice. Read. It's very sweet of you to think that's. Oh, lovely. I mean, I, I it's kind of goes some crazy. In <laughs> some of the stories, like you, you might come across a fifteen-year-old who's had a double mastectomy and who regrets it three years later or six years later, and. It's heartbreaking, I think, yeah. reading some of the stories. Yeah. yeah. Now, you wouldn't get a double mastectomy in Ireland but at 15, but you would at 18, maybe, or 19. I'm not sure if you would. But what happens mostly in Ireland? In Ireland, it seems to be a very good service, to be honest. I don't think you would get it. But what happens is people crowdfund and they go to other countries to get it. Right. And, and that seems to be the way they say that the service isn't good enough in Ireland. Well, I would say it seems to be quite a good service. I don't know. But that's the reports I'm getting. But sadly, it's available in other places and, um, you know, they pay for it. But yeah, it's it's an issue. Mastectomies is really, really common among female to male. That's the girls who want to be boys. They they seem to get mastectomies. They get the testosterone, they get the hair growth, they get the voices. They're the really common kind of tick list. I was trying to find out figures of Irish children who have transitioned, but it's quite difficult to get them, the, the figures. A number, was it April 2019, 100 Irish children were sent to Gender Identity Development Services. That's the UK service, I think. So yeah. that's, that's not an insignificant number. Yeah, I thought the figures were something like 25, 10 years ago and 250 Um 
now, but I might be wrong. See, what you said there, see, like all of these, you have to penetrate them. They went to England. That doesn't mean that my figures could also be right because they might have presented at the treatment centre. Okay, so we really have no way of knowing. Yeah, yeah. Well, unless we became, you know, researchers. And there are researchers out there who are collecting this sorts of information. But yeah, the rise, I'm sure, of that was reported on the RTE News, 2,200% rise. And there are small figures. They're going from uh, double digits to triple digits. You know, do you know what I mean? Something along the lines of 25 to 250. They're small numbers right now, but we are in the middle of what seems to be anecdotally a, 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 an explosion. As you said, right. everybody, you know. One thing that uh, I feel is really important to discuss with you is for um, for parents who might be listening, who have children who are identifying as trans. Uh, what should they do? What can they do? Um, I think the first thing to do with a child who identifies as trans is try to connect with them on a deeper level, because generally it's an indication of of deep um, distress. And they need to be connected with in a very non-judgmental way. Um, Lisa Marciano and Sasha Ayad, who are both um, colleagues of mine who work, who are both therapists and they work in America, they have great videos about how to kind of connect with your children if they identify as trans. I think it's very important that you um, seek the right help for them without immediately um, um, becoming emotional about it. And it's very, very hard not to become emotional, but it's very important that, you know, you kind of rise to the occasion and you kind of learn to live with that, the kind of highs and lows of the teenage emotion without becoming massively infected. And I know that's very, very difficult. Do you know what I mean? But also to do an awful lot of reading. There's a huge amount of information out there if you're willing to seek it out. And it's out there if you if you if you go. But kind of, you know, I know a woman whose child was uh, identified as trans and she was, a, you know, a very professional, very successful engineer. And she said, I went down to a three day week and Mondays and Fridays were given over to me studying trans. And she has a PhD in, enge- in engineering. And she says, I have the equivalent of a PhD now in gender because it's been so difficult to penetrate the truth among all the flimsy studies. D- do you follow me? It took her so much time. She got there in the end, but it like you will really need to read and reread and penetrate an awful lot. But there's a lot of people. There's growing, there's organisations every single day who are starting to help parents and to help families and to help teenagers. So maybe I could include some links then at the, yeah. in the information on the podcast. Yeah, good idea. Um, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you would like to bring into the discussion about gender? And I would like to encourage people to speak about this. I think people are afraid to speak about it. And they say, I fear for my jobs and they say, I, I, I fear for speaking up. I can't speak up. And it means people like me are left much more isolated as a result. And um, I appreciate the fear. I've I've experienced it in lots of different levels in the last few years. But I do think that, you know, not to speak at this stage is is feels very isolating. And I think in Ireland in particular, it just seems like everybody's just literally looking at it and going, what is going on? I don't dare join. And I'm like, that's acting as if there's one specific thing that none of us can can understand, but everything else we can understand. And I, I don't buy that. I think we're allowed and we should be free to talk about everything. I think it's really, really important, you know. Why are people afraid? Um, I think uh, there have been extremists and they have been incredibly um vociferous in their in their way of 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 silencing people they have tried to remove people from jobs and people have been removed from jobs because they've spoken out about trans ideology if you look at and i'm talking about trans ideology as opposed to trans trans i'm all for trans ideology I have a lot of difficulties with. If you look at what happened to J.K. Rowling and if you look at actually what she wrote, you will realise, wow, there's a massive disconnect here. She talked about women and women's rights 
And, you know, why is there an explosion among young teenage girls? How is this impacting? Why aren't the detransitioners being given a voice? And for some reason, these words were so offensive to certain extremists, trans extremists. And she has been treated really, really badly. And that's why people are afraid, because they've seen things like that happen. And they've seen how dark and cynical it becomes. And that's why people are afraid. And yet, as a result, people like me and JK are more isolated. So I, that would be what I would I would encourage people to speak up. And of course, uh, it could be damaging to our children and that the more people who speak up, at least we can explore the issues. Yeah. We can discuss them and come up with what is the best option, which might be puberty blockers, which might be testosterone, which might be mastectomies, but equally might not be. And that we find out what age is, is the best for people to transition or to not transition and that we can learn more. Yeah, I remember George Orwell said, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. And um, we need to have the freedom to say things that might be difficult. We need to have the freedom to be able to say things that people don't want to hear. And if we're being silenced as a society, to me, that's why I've stayed in this issue, not because um, of any other reason. It's just when you're getting silenced, it's like, well, that dismantles our entire free society. It dismantles everything when people are being silenced. And in the film, and if anybody watches the film, put up the link for the film as well, if you could. If anybody watches it, they'll see there's a section where these activists come in and they try to, well, they they attempt to kind of destroy the equipment. And like this was Channel 4 equipment. This is cameras and sound equipment. It was extraordinary what they wanted to do in a bid to stop a talk. And this was a basically a group of middle-aged feminists who all would have been, you know, banned the bomb in the 80s and it would have been very into climate change and they wanted to discuss what happens to women's spaces such as prisons and domestic refuges if if um, women, if men are allowed to self-identify as women. That's all they wanted to discuss. And the, the level of aggression and violence that these middle-aged women were faced with was astonishing. It really was astonishing and you'll see it in the film if you watch it. And that's when I realised you can't silence people. Just like the only way to, to get through and the only way to have a progressive um, society is to, to debate. And if that doesn't work, to have more debate. And if that doesn't work, to have more debate. Anybody who's Irish has gone through Northern Ireland, gone through the, the, the peace process, realises we have to talk to everybody, even the people you don't want to hear. Great. I would like to keep asking you questions. Can I just ask you one more? Yeah, actually? yeah. Just uh, have you yourself felt that you've been silenced? Have people tried to silence you? Has it had an impact on your own career? Uh, yeah, I have been silenced. I have been silenced and people have tried to silence me and I have chosen not to say things when I wanted to very, very often. And uh, I have had scurrilous attacks on me. And I don't tend to talk about them very much because I think it gives these people energy. And uh, I think I have to be very careful in how I speak about it. So I don't tend to talk about it. But yeah, I'll leave it at that. I've definitely been attacked many times. May I say, if one day we do live in a freer society where we can all talk, I will freely talk. I'll come back and I'll tell you exactly what happened. <laughs> and I will, I will talk about it at length to anybody who listened to me when I feel we live in a freer place that we can talk about things. Great. Well, let's hope uh, we get to that point soon, <laughs> sooner rather than later. Stella, thanks a million for chatting to me. That was great. Thank you. I enjoyed it. That's it for this episode of Spokes. Thanks to our guest, Stella O'Malley. You can find links to material discussed in the episode and other websites recommended by Stella in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, do check out our other episodes and don't forget to subscribe.
please like and subscribe and share the video. <laughs> there is no video. <laughs> Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.